0: Welcome to the Purpose at Work podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Jacobson. This episode is brought to you by Guided. They help you stop employee burnout and turnover by providing great coaching for all employees so you can get out of the weeds and focus on building great culture. The best talent values learning and growth over everything else. They don't want to be managed. They want to be guided to realize their potential so if you're ready to evolve talent development make sure to check out getguided.co now let's jump into the episode all right everyone welcome back to another episode of the purpose at work podcast i'm your host spencer jacobson Today, I have Phil Burgess, and Phil looks after people, culture, and operations for the customer agency C Space in the US. Previously, he was joint MD of C Space in London, and their mission is to make business more human by building customers into the way companies work to drive growth and business change. And Phil's role is also to ensure that they're making C Space a more human business as well. So, welcome to the show, Phil. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's dive in. Phil, I'd love to hear a bit more about C-Space and what you're doing. And one of the things I noted was that your role as chief people and operations officer, mm-hmm. which is not so common. Sometimes a red flag or sometimes actually a really
1: good sign. Hopefully it's a good sign. Yeah, I can certainly tell you a little bit about C-Space. So, I mean, C-Space, we're, we think of ourselves as a customer agency. And what that means is we try to put customers at the heart of our clients' businesses and we encourage our clients' whether that's a bank or a social media company, to bring their customers in and work with them creatively to solve business problems. And the whole premise is is rather than having a bunch of experts sitting in a room coming up with the answer, if you work with your customers and understand their lives, you will create better brands, better innovations, better products and services. So it's about sort of appreciating the messiness of people and bringing them in and having them work with clients to solve problems. I guess my role, I started off my time with C-Space before we merged. We're actually formed of a merger of two companies in London. There was only about 35 of us at the time. And then we've grown. I ran the London office and now I'm here in Boston as chief people and operations officer. And I guess the thinking behind that is you need great operating systems and you need a great employee experience to run a great business. And if you bring those two things together, we'd be a lot stronger. And I really pushed to include people in the title rather than just COO, because I felt it was really important to signal to people that without an amazing employee experience, if we don't care for our people, we're never gonna do great work for our clients. So that was, and I've been enrolled for about five months now in this new role.
0: The reason it piqued my interest is some companies throw it in there as, oh, well, and they're the chief people officer, which is a red flag or for you guys thinking of it really strategically in saying hey this is a really important part of our business and the operations of our business so i thought that was interesting so phil i'd love to turn back the clock a little bit and sounds like you've had a really interesting career but where did this you know where'd you grow up could you share a little bit about the early days for phil and how that started to influence who you are
1: Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you can probably tell I'm not from the States. I'm from London originally. So I grew up in a Greater London in a town called South Corydon, which isn't a particularly nice place. And I spent a bit of time in the Middle East with my parents and then they got divorced and I came back to the UK. I always did well at school, sort of academically, and then I studied German and business studies at university. And I think my career started out sort of fairly unusually. I did what most people who go to a good uni in the UK do. The big companies come around, the banks, the management consultancies, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, and I applied for some internships. But... In the end, I ended up getting this summer job, which was with a company called Southwestern Advantage. And I was standing in line one day for my grant payment, and I got handed this flyer and it said that it was the toughest summer job that you could ever do. And if you did it, you'd be set up for life in terms of careers. It would give you amazing stories. And I went to the presentation and they told me all about it. And it ended up being a job to run your own business, selling educational books door to door in the States. So I signed up, this was back in 1999, and I flew out that summer, it was at the end of my first year of university, and I flew out to Nashville, Tennessee, and they train you up for a week in how to sell books. And then I got on a Greyhound bus across to Modesto, California, with a group of nine other students from university, and you find a place to live, and then you sell books door to door all summer. And yeah, it was without a doubt the hardest, craziest summer job I've ever done, the hardest thing I've ever done. What did
0: you learn from that experience?
1: I learned a lot. I learned how much I was able to push myself. So I think until that point, everything had come relatively easily to me. So I'd always been top academically, top at school. And I think being out on my own, fending for myself, selling books all day, taught me a lot about how resilient I was. We used to have this schedule. So we'd get up at 5.59 in the morning and jump in a cold shower because the idea was if you had done that, that was one horrible thing that you'd done before you had to knock on your first door. We'd go to Denny's for breakfast and we'd read like positive motivational stuff with our roommates to try and block out the fact we were going to be walking around the streets all day by ourselves. And then we'd have to knock on our first door at 7.59 and then we'd work a 13 and a half hour day. So the idea was you knocked on your last door at 9.31 and you did that six days a week for 10 weeks. So If you did that, you got an award that showed that you could work 81 hours, and it was all about controlling the controllables. So if you control the number of hours you work, and then you control the number of doors you knock on and control the number of presentations you give, eventually, even if you're really bad at sales, some people would buy books from you. So I think it taught me a lot about, like on my first day, I sold one book for $30 to This guy, he spoke Spanish and I sort of fumbled my way through with GCSE Spanish. And then for the other sort of 12 and a half hours, I sold nothing. And then the next day I sold nothing. And then when I went to my first Sunday meeting, nine of the 11 people on my team had quit because it was so tough. And they kind of prepare you mentally for the fact that you probably won't sell very much. But if you work at it, you'll get better. And I guess I just made this commitment that I was going to get through the summer and I wasn't going to quit. And whatever happened and whatever was thrown at me I wasn't going to quit and partly because my parents like neither my mum nor my dad wanted me to go and do this crazy job on commission they wanted me to go to a an internship and go to a bank and get my graduate career sorted out And I guess it just also taught me that if you just keep knocking, you're going to find kind people. So I'd find people that would give me food and sort of look after me. And the more doors I knocked on, the better I got. And actually selling became something I really liked. And my final day of my final house at the end of that 10 week summer, I sold some books to this family that gave me enough credits to win this holiday. And it was horrible. I mean, I cried multiple times. i pass out from the heat, because it was 110 degrees in California. And then I went back and they invited me back to do it again. And I ended up actually doing it for seven straight years. Every summer through college, I did it. And then I recruited students. I met my wife through it. And compared to any sort of managerial office job, I think it's the experience that most shaped who I am and my approach to the way I lead and the way I sort of get on with life.
0: Seven summers.
1: Yeah, I did seven summers. So I did one in California, a couple in Virginia, one in Florida, down in Tampa. Houston. And during the academic year, I would recruit students at university to come out with me and do this in the summer and train them on how to do it and prepare them sort of emotionally and technically for what they'd be doing. And then you would manage and lead them on the field. So you would go and sell books and they would come and train with you. And that was an interesting learning experience too, because I think it taught me a lot about how to build teams and what to look for in the people I wanted to work with and how to lead by example and how my own leadership style impacted whether or not they did well. And I had teams that did really well eventually. And I also had teams that bombed pretty much because of the way I did or didn't work with them. And so
0: first of all, this is awesome. (laughs) This is crazy. This is awesome. Second, I want to understand in terms of taking the job the first time, Mm -hmm. you took it because you wanted to challenge yourself and you said it advertised itself as the hardest job you could do. And if you Mm -hmm. could get through it, that you would be set up that was attractive to you?
1: Yeah, that was a big part of it. And again, I think like things had come easy to me. I was conscious that I, I mean, I came from a nice home and yeah, I guess at university, everyone was collecting experiences and everyone was going off to do the same old internships. And I did think this would make me stand out. I mean, obviously when I was out there, like sweating in the hundred degree heat and dealing with all the rejection, people would like count me off their land and threaten to go and get their gun or like... People would accuse me of scamming them or being a magazine, traveling magazine salesperson. But you could feel yourself growing. And it was a very supportive environment as well. So they did have great training and they taught you a lot of the success principles. So they taught you that if you had a great attitude and a great work ethic, good things would happen. And it does sound cheesy, but I guess I really believed in those things. And I used to have a quote stuck on my dashboard and on the light switch. So it was one of the first things I'd see in the morning. And it was the Roosevelt one, which Brené Brown talks about in her book, that the credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose faces. Is... And I used to sort of almost recount that sometimes when I was marching between houses. And again, partly that was because they trained you that if you were thinking positive thoughts, you wouldn't have room for the negative thoughts about the homesickness. But I think you could feel yourself growing. And I know my. Friends and my family who thought I was crazy, when I got back, they saw that I'd become a different person and I recruited my brother to do it. And then I got to see what kind of impact I could have on him. And then a lot of the people who I recruited, they still sort of write to me and thank me for that experience, whether they did well or whether they didn't do well. If I managed to help them get through the summer and persevere through to the end. And that's also, I think, given me a lot of, I guess it's kind of shaped my approach to like what gives me a kick out of building teams now. Like it's nice to have an impact on people. It keeps you going
0: first and foremost, I personally resonate with this story in a major way. Having worked some summer jobs in construction and landscape reconstruction and just extremely challenging, those were extremely physically challenging roles and how much I learned from that. But then also really seeing so clearly that how you show up as a leader directly affects the results of the people on the team. Can you talk a bit more about how you've seen that play out in your career?
1: If I think back to, we talk about the book field. So like, if I think back to my book selling days, I would be acutely conscious of the fact that if I was in a good mood, my roommate's would invariably go out and have a better day. And the kinds of things I talked about at breakfast before we all split up and went our separate ways would impact their day. So we used to talk about attitudes being contagious and the importance of leading by example. And if they were following me on the field, the way I reacted to having a door slammed in my face, they would sort of Model that behavior when they were by themselves the next day. I think it taught me a lot about that. And then I guess as I've moved into sort of research, insight, innovation, the I guess more traditional creative agency world, I think, yeah, the way you show up to work has a huge impact. If you're the kind of person that's moaning and whining about everything that's going on, everyone else joins in and suddenly you're on this sort of negative downward spiral. We used to talk about negging each other out. And if you try and see the positives in a situation, and if you ask yourself, what are the options? Or we used to talk about like CIA, what can you control? What can you influence? And what can you accept? And I think one of the things selling books taught me is there's a whole load of stuff you can't control, but there's a lot of stuff you can. And if you focus on the things you control, then you're going to be okay. And it's the same, I think, in how we show up at work.
0: I love this for so many reasons. I mean, the impact of this program sounds like a mixture of a 12-step program with the Landmark Forum with an amazing leadership training exercise all mixed into one. And it's one of the things I love about sales is it's basically a personal growth exercise. Facing of rejection over and over again and then how you relate to that. It's such a human exercise. You know, We're not so rational about selling or buying or interacting with people in that way, especially when sheer rejection is on the table.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, I think if you can get your head around that, it's basically about relationships. And like, if you show up in a good mood, they're more likely to buy from you. It would put so much stuff in perspective as well. We used to be like, I can do anything for one day. So like there were days where I would sit on someone's lawn and look through their window and see a family sitting down to dinner, or it would be 4th of July and everyone would be having barbecues and I'd be out walking the streets and I'd be like, at the beginning, I'd be like, "God, oh, they all think I'm like scamming them. And then in the end, you're just like, let's put this perspective in perspective. All I have to do is like knock on doors for a day. Like, what's the worst that can happen? Like, there are people that are dying and you used to have to almost do this thing in your head. But I think it's the same with sales. It can become this huge thing, or you can be like, I'm just building relationships with people and maybe they'll buy from me and maybe they won't. And if I listen to them and I'm trying to understand their needs, and we talk about having a buying atmosphere, they're more likely to buy stuff from you. And I think it's the same Whether you're selling like a $300 set of encyclopedias or whether you're selling a £300,000 innovation program, if you really listen hard for what people want, people are going to buy stuff from you. And if you're focused on them as clients rather than focused on yourself and your own targets, it's hard. On a good day, I can do this. On a bad day, I'm like everyone else. I think it can apply to so much of what you need to do to be successful.
0: I promise we'll move on in a second. But I also want to say people want to buy Sometimes when we're in the selling position, we get into this mindset of, oh, they don't want to, I'm impositioning this person. I'm asking them to do something they don't want to do. But then I think about my own experience of buying stuff. I love to buy stuff.
1: We used to talk about this. We used to say people love to buy and they hate to be sold. So the reason people don't like salespeople is because they usually outstay their welcome. They usually don't ask questions. They usually don't listen. We used to hustle. So we used to be like, I've only got 20 minutes and then I need to move on. So like, I haven't even got time to come in your house. Let's grab a seat out here and I can show you what I'm up to. And then people would be interested. And I do think like you get onto a role. And I think that's the same in business. Like when you're on a role and your attitude is good and you're successful, people can pick up on that and then good things happen. And it's about controlling a virtuous circle, which is another reason why we used to focus on the controllables. Because if you can get the circle turning by focusing on stuff you can control, then the other good stuff will sort of come along. But from, tell of your attitude to your effort rather than the results.
0: Right. Phil, so I'd love to hear about One of the things you talked about is making C-Space a more human business as well and creating a really thriving culture where people can thrive, do their best work. I'd love to hear about whether it's some programs that you guys have in place and how you approach that, because obviously C-Space seems like it's been a really successful organization. And so how do you think about that?
1: It's been a kind of crazy journey, if I'm really honest. So, I mean, if I think back to like 2015, when Felix and I took over as joint managing directors of our London office... At the time, we'd actually been formed out of a merger of two companies. There was a small co-creation consultancy called Promise of about 35 people, 40 people, and then a large market research company called Communispace based in Boston. And they crashed us together and we rebranded. And we were a very sales-led culture at the time. And when we were acquired, we were bought by a holding company, which put even more pressure on us to sort of deliver the numbers each quarter. And my boss left and we were made join MD at a time when we just laid some people off for the first time ever in our history and growth was flat for the first time in a long time. We did an employee engagement survey about three months after we took over and at the time about 56% of people said that they were proud to work for the company. This was when we were in London. I think 40% said they plan to stick around for another year. And we were just low and we would spend a lot of our time diving into rooms talking about how entitled people felt and how whiny everyone was. And in the end, we kind of looked at ourselves a little bit and we were like, well, what are we doing here? And we were running around trying to treat all of these little problems that were blowing up everywhere, like the cost of breakfast and our PL sheet and how we organized this team. And in the end we said, like, we've got a cultural problem here and we need to change from being a sales-led culture to more of a people-led culture. And we talked about like if we focused on people, great people would do great work and that would lead to growth, which would allow us to focus back on people. So sort of classic service profit chain stuff. And I think the biggest thing we did at the time was recognize that our culture wasn't working and we needed to sort of generate a way of driving cultural change. We got together a cross-functional group of people from all levels and all sort of departments in the business. And we had them take a look at what was us on our best day and what was us on our worst day. And specifically on our worst day, we asked them to look at the behaviors that they saw across the business that they felt were damaging. So the senior person who would go home on time, even though the junior person was still working on the report. The people that would raise their hands for something to get CV points, but then wouldn't follow through on things. And that team sort of co-created a set of behaviors. And we deliberately called them behaviors, not values, because we were saying like, these aren't values that we're just going to stick on a wall, but these are behaviors we're going to use as a sort of levers to drive change. So one of them was, I got this. And that was born out of the idea that people looked around the business and didn't feel that they could rely on other people to do what they said they were going to do. Another one was Show the Love, and we felt that we were a company of sort of ambitious perfectionists, and we were racing on to the next thing, and we weren't taking enough time just to pause and celebrate successes, and we, everyone was so focused on doing their own thing, we'd kind of forgotten that we needed to care about each other. And those behaviors, we started with four, and we did build them out, really started to shape our culture. We started doing little call-outs for people at all of our company meetings. And within a year, it was up to, I think about 76% of people felt that they'd had a positive impact on the culture and the people around them. And pride in working here had gone up to about 85%. So I think that's probably the thing that has shaped us most over the years and then we've had to keep working at it as the positive and negative sort of impacts of that have played out.
0: Essentially, the exercise was in some ways interviewing. So first of all, doing a survey, but then interviewing people on the best
1: and the worst behaviors. Yeah, yeah. And then calling attention to those
0: behaviors.
1: Yeah, we wanted to sort of hero the little things that make a difference to working here day to day. So like how do you catch people doing the little Things right, and how do you encourage people to do more of the things that are going to make for a positive culture? So, another one was Only Accept Awesome. And again, it was born out of the fact that we'd just been acquired, we were doing quite well, but we looked at our work and we didn't feel as proud of it as we felt that we should. And we were like, What do we need to do? So, Only Accept Awesome became one of our sort of behaviors that we started to live by. We quickly realized about a year in that we hadn't actually defined what awesome looked like. So, that then triggered an initiative around how do we celebrate awesome work, which we are. Asked one of the mid-level sort of managers to run a program around, and another team got together to sort of say, actually, there are five different tenets of what awesome means. So that means sweating the small stuff, and that means like having impact on a client. So it started to create performance standards as well. And then after a year, we found that like we were doing a really good job of showing the love. It was a very nice place to work, but people were still frustrated when it got to review time that they hadn't been given enough feedback around how to progress. So we introduced another two values. One was open up and listen and the other was tell it like it is and they became sort of safe ways into a conversation to have more candid feedback conversations with people in all directions because we're all being so nice to each other we weren't actually just saying hey when you do that in a meeting it kind of annoys me or it was all coming out at people's annual review again and I think what we've learned through this whole process is whatever you do you just have to keep working on it and what you get you promote so you have to keep talking about it you have to make sure leadership are living it you have to give people a way of calling each other out when they're not doing these things, particularly leadership. We had a big board up on the office wall where we had the behavior that we were working on the most. So mine was tell it like it is because I struggled to give direct feedback. So everyone in the business knew that that was my development area and they knew I was pretty good at one of the other ones. And we were trying to sort of signal to people that, hey, we're all sort of works in progress, but if we all just keep working at this stuff and if we're honest about these things, we are gonna build a better business And, and it's worked. Like we're picking up awards now that four years ago we wouldn't have dreamed of. And I do think it's because we just made a concerted effort to focus on culture and treat the root cause of some of our issues rather than try and treat all the symptoms around the edges. Yeah.
0: So many companies struggle with that. Things start to be challenging, things start to go sideways and they turn away from the people, right? And it's really insightful to have the trust to say, hey, you know what, we're gonna focus on people and trust that when people are supported and thriving, they'll do better work and that will
1: translate to results on the bottom line i think it's hard like certainly in the first year after we took over i had been banging on for years about how i thought we should have an hr team and at the time we still didn't have one the reality was when we sort of took over in the role we couldn't find enough money to devote as much to our people as we could so the first step was a little bit like okay how do we write the business and how do we make sure we've got financial growth coming in and then that is going to enable us to put more resource into the people functions and spend more time on the stuff that we're passionate about and for a few months we beat ourselves up about it but i think the breakthrough for us was actually being more candid with our team about what we needed to do we sort of lay out a four-year people strategy and we sort of said in year one we're not going to be trying to win any like best place to work awards we're not going to be entering engagement surveys because we know that everyone's kind of frustrated but what we are going to do is try and get the business on an even keel in terms of sustainable financial performance and basics we had a picture of a car And it was like, we're going under the bonnet and we're just going to fix stuff. And then the next year, we're just going to ramp it up a little bit. But then I think the important thing was like connecting the financial performance with people again. So at the end of the year, because we improved things, we were able to improve everyone's pensions a little bit we sort of really communicated the fact that because we're focused on profits and because we're growing the business, that enables us to reinvest in our people. So we're able to sort of make the connection. And that's why we're not going to apologize for looking for profitable growth because actually sales had become almost negative because it was associated with like the banging the drama of going out and winning more business. And we were like, we need all three. We need great people. We have to do great work and we have to be a growing profitable business because without any one of those things, we're not going to do well. And then Gradually, I guess the more our finances look good, the more we're able to focus on people and changing our policies. And it is a bit of a luxury sometimes to spend time closing the office down and having an afternoon doing feedback training. But I think it sends a signal to people.
0: And the thing that I hear that was the key in all that was being honest with people.
1: Yeah, I think we've learned the hard way that being honest matters. I believe in transparency and being honest and candid as a leader. But I think if I think of the mistakes we made, it's usually when we haven't told people what's really going on. So when we made the cuts, the job cuts before sort of four or five years ago, not being clear with people about why that was happening, like when we changed the time of breakfast and didn't give people free bread, everyone got really angry and we got really angry. But in the end, we opened up the P&L and we were like, look, this is how much money we make and this is how much we can spend on this and this and this. And if we change this, we can spend more here. I think the more transparent you are with people about this stuff, the more they forgive your inevitable sort of weaknesses. I feel like whenever we've messed up, it's usually because we haven't been honest, fully honest or transparent about something, or we've worried so much about hurting someone's feelings or worrying what people will think that we over engineer the message. And it's yeah. something we're still working at. It's something that I'm still working at.
0: Yeah. Companies sound a lot like people when you say it that way. Yeah.
1: And that's where I think I'm really taken with this idea at the moment of like embracing the messiness and being more human. And we said at the start, like our mission is to make business more human. And I think what's beginning to work for us now as I've moved across to the States, is if we talk about like making a a more human business, that means we should accept that things are going to be messy because we're people, which also means it's okay to be emotional. Like you should be able to bring your emotions to work and be authentic at work. And it's going to be ambiguous because we're growing at a crazy rate and the world outside is going crazy. If we're a human business, that means we should be making mistakes and we should probably be a bit forgiving of each other when we make them. So I think... I don't know, I I really, I see more and more people talking about this and the more I read and hear about it, the more I think that's gonna be the way forward that the businesses that are most human are gonna be the ones that are most successful for today's sort of workforce.
0: Can you talk a little bit about what allowing for messiness and I know we're coming up on time here. This is another area I'm really passionate about is allowing for chaos, allowing for messiness, allowing for humanity. How are you bringing that into C-Space?
1: It's a good question because I think as we've scaled, we started scrappy and entrepreneurial as a small company. And then as we've scaled, like any business, we've introduced systems and process and Functions and silos, and we're now actually sort of consciously trying to sort of break them down again to make sure we remain sort of nimble. I think we're doing a few things. I mean, I think one thing that we're starting to do better at is have leaders more openly discuss their failures in public. So Jessica, our president, the other day, sent an email around the the leadership team about a client meeting she'd been to where she felt she'd really messed up. She shared another story in one of our staff meetings about a similar thing. We had a panel of some of our account directors the other day, and historically we We've always just celebrated successes, but we had four of them talk about relationships that were going well, but also relationships that they had messed up. And that really went down well with people as a sign that we were beginning to embrace the fact that. Yeah, good stuff happens, bad stuff happens, and we all make mistakes, especially as we try and encourage a culture where we want our more junior people to feel that they can take risks and that if they mess up, it's not going to be held against them. I think just talking about that is one thing. We're also doing things like changing our parental leave policies and looking at things like flexible working and saying, actually, we used to give this, we're going to change it to that so that we can sort of accept the fact that people live and they work and it's all getting messy. And and as an employer, we need to sort of help people integrate their work life and their home life. And the final thing, I think we're talking a lot about moving away from like adult to child relationships to more adult to adult relationships. So how do you just say to people like, look, this is kind of crazy right now. We're working through it. We don't know the answer, but help us instead of as a leadership dream, just trying to sort of solve all the problems for people and inevitably falling short, but do like, hey, we're working on this together. We haven't got there yet, but help us work through the solutions. And I think we're a long way to getting to where we wanna be, but we're starting the journey. That's
0: really cool. The paternalism at companies, I think, is people shooting themselves in the foot. Because if we're always feeling like we need to have the answer for people before we can tell them the truth or what's going on, we're really eliminating a lot of the potential avenues or genius within the company. When the junior person knows that shit is not handled, in some way, they actually have an opportunity to do something about it then. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And I think we struggle. I think we all struggle because when nice people, like when you look around an agency, things are inevitably busy and crazy. Sometimes the last thing you want to do is ask someone to take on more when they're already doing more. And counterintuitively, sometimes asking that person to step up or giving them an opportunity to do something different to what they're already doing is going to give them new energy. I read a book over the weekend and it was always it was talking about stop managing time and start managing energy and recognizing that. Yeah, actually, if you distribute authority and you empower people to make decisions and try new things and mess stuff up, then, I mean, people will give more because they're just more fulfilled. And I guess partly it's how do we unlock that in our interactions with people when we're sort of running things day to day. What was the name of the book? It was Lead at Speed by Sophie Devonshire. I'm halfway through, but it's definitely um, worth a read. There's some great stuff in there on yeah, managing energy, human leadership, managing your pace as a leader and figuring out like when to go fast and when to go slow. It's just a lot of useful reminders, which yeah, I think are worth sort of taking heed of.
0: Yeah, that's a big one. Shifting from this such an intense focus on time versus energy—that's big. Phil, anything else come up for you over the course of the conversation that you want to share before we wrap up? No, I mean, it's
1: been an enjoyable chat. I I always find these kind of conversations are helpful. Just it reminds me that as a leader, you have to sometimes in the crazy day to day, it's important just to take time out to reflect on what's working and what's not working. And sometimes I think we all beat ourselves up a little bit about all the stuff that's not working. And it's always nice to cast your mind back to some of your previous experiences and and recognize that everything you're doing is kind of shaping who you're becoming and yeah like it's a nice reminder for me that sometimes like when i'm having a bad day i've done some good stuff along the way as well like i think we all carry this little negative voice on our shoulders and it's worth talking stuff through like this or reminding yourself that actually yeah we're all learning and some good stuff's happened as well
0: we're all having a human experience
1: yeah exactly that's a better way of putting it a much better way of putting it The
0: fully human experience. Phil, what's the best way for people to follow your work or get in touch?
1: So they can check out the C-Space website at cspace.com or ping me a note on LinkedIn. And I'm always happy to connect with interesting people.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Phil.
1: No problem.